Hi, everyone. Welcome to Count Me In with Della and Deanna. If you want to rethink your classroom in exciting and innovative ways, this conversation is for you. Today, we feature a motivating conversation with Erica Winterer, a PhD candidate in STEM education at the University of Texas, Austin, where she is working under the direction of Uri Treisman. She earned her undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering and then taught for two years in the Teach for America program and two additional years at the high school level in New Orleans. Erica calls attention to the importance of parents who model a strong work ethic, the power of regularly reflecting on and talking about teaching, and her hopes for students in her classroom that extend far beyond the content. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, she also sneaks in some thoughts about adopting a seven-year-old daughter while finishing her dissertation. So please join us as we talk with Erica Winterer. Hi, Erica. Hi, Erica. So nice of you to join us. It's so nice for you to ask me. Thank you for having me. Erica, the way we like to start these is we like for you to start by telling us your story. So I will say when I got the questions, I realized this podcast was more about myself than the work I've been doing. (laughs) (laughs) I was much more nervous to talk about myself. (laughs) You're an expert on both, though. (laughs) I am, but I think um, talking about this is not something that I normally do. And so... um, I grew up in Conroe, Texas, which is a very white, suburban, conservative, religious place. Mm -hmm. It's about 45 minutes north of Houston. It's near the Woodlands. And so I went to school there my whole life. I went to high school there. I was a very, I think, intense kid. I got a B once in fourth grade. It was very hard for me. It was an 80, it was an 89. And it was because we had gotten back from vacation and I did not know that I had to take an exam. And so I felt very personally um, attacked by this teacher for forcing me to take this exam. I still remember taking the test and not knowing anything that was on it. Um, it was horrible. It was something about geometry. I love or something the like that. details of this. <laughs> It was very traumatic for me. It was formative. (laughs) Very traumatic. And so uh, I never made another B until I got to university. And so how high school went for me was I was all, Texas is very intense and that every semester you're in high school, they pass out your rankings at lunchtime every semester. And so every semester I would get the ranking and I was one for a very long time out of almost 600 students. And then my senior year, I ended up being second, but the courses that we were taking were very good up until we started taking AP courses. And so they weren't very rigorous. I remember our AP physics teacher, he was very kind, but he would give us three questions. And then our exam was just one of those questions. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to university, I was very underprepared because I was majoring in bioengineering or biomedical engineering. And the only reason I chose that was because I went to an information session at UT. And because I was a woman and because I was good at math and science, they really pushed engineering we need more women. You you would be good at it. You could make a lot of money. I never once stopped to think about what I wanted to do or what I would like to do or 
what gave me a sense of purpose. And so I was just very competitive. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard and there weren't a lot of women in it. And so I decided that's what I would do. And I was also very successful at university. I made decent grades. I, well, they were good. I think I graduated with a Mm -hmm. 3.75. I published a paper my senior year on vascular research. I worked with um, a man named Dr. Murphy, who was very kind uh, as well, but I never got a sense of satisfaction about it. I always thought I'm doing well because I'm good at school, not because I'm good at engineering, not because I will do well in this profession. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about my senior year, I had a lot of anxiety thinking about what entry-level jobs were available to me because biomedical engineering is not a field where there are many entry-level jobs that are appealing. Mm -hmm. I spent a summer fixing medical equipment in a hospital. (laughs) That was not my favorite um, job. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember old men commenting on how big my scrubs were, like walking down the hallway. I was like, this is not appropriate for a workplace. I remember the one thing I remember from that job, it was horrible. And, so, and it was my mom's hospital and she was the manager of risk assessment. <laughs> and so I volunteered in schools my senior year of mm-hmm. university. And I remember working in a middle school and I had gotten there and the teacher, all teachers in New Orleans are very interesting. <laughs> he was this very quirky man. And he wanted me to work one-on-one with a student who was not doing well. The student was, I remember his full name. I'm not going to say it podcast, but it's, it's very vivid for me. And so I pulled him in the hallway. We were going over a spelling test. The only information I had about this student was that he was held back one year. He had just transferred to the school. He had been getting in fights. And it was October. And he was going over these words with him. He did not know any of these words, mm-hmm. none of them. And so the next time I met with him, I gave him an assessment, like a reading assessment. And he was reading on a kindergarten level mm-hmm. in middle school. Mm-hmm. And this was really hard for me to process. Number one, that he was so far behind. Number two, that I, as a really inept high like senior in university, was the one to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And it was October. And... I remember walking home and calling my mom because I had grown up with this narrative of everyone has a fair chance. Everyone gets to go to public school. If you don't do well, it's your own fault. I very much believed all of those things. Mm -hmm. And there was no way you could get to middle school and not read, no matter how lazy you were. (laughs) You've been in school for five or six years. There's no way that would happen Mm -hmm. if the school were set up in such a way where everyone did in fact have a fair chance. And so I was very upset about this (laughs) and I was crying on the sidewalk, walking home, talking to my mom and she was not outraged at the level I was. And I got very angry (laughs) and I hung up on her, which I regret doing. That was not kind. But um, anyway, I decided to do Teach for America Mm-hmm. And I taught high school in New Orleans for two years with Teach for America. And then I taught for two more years after that placement. Then I decided to do a PhD in STEM education. And that's how I ended up at UT. 
working for Uri Treisman in his calculus class. And that's what I'm doing now. I think he's ready for me to move on at this point. <laughs> this will be my sixth year teaching with him. But we uh, have a very codependent relationship at this point. <laughs> so it's been really nice. And I've learned a lot from him and I've been able to add on to the course. And graduate school has really just been a lovely experience for me. Great. Tell us a little bit about your Teach for America experience. I always have students who are interested in that, about the process of the selection process and what it was like for you, funding and those sorts of things. The selection process, I remember, wasn't very intense for me, especially if your students are majoring in math. I don't think it would be very intense for them. I remember we had to do like a sample teach lesson. But I also remember you have to take these certification tests after you're accepted into Teach for America. And I got certified in chemistry, but I taught chemistry. I taught biology. I taught physical science. I taught AP physics. I taught geometry. I taught algebra and pre-algebra. <laughs> and, so, and I only taught for four years. And so their motto was, Erica has an engineering degree, whatever we can't hire for, that is what she will teach this year. And so the chemistry exam, for example, like I didn't study for it, but there were other people who had majored in literature who were then had to teach chemistry. And so it was mostly me helping them with those exams. But I would say for anybody who's interested in Teach for America, it's very much a, a way to get into a classroom. And your experiences with Teach for America will be very different based on where you're, the region that you are placed in and also the school that you're placed in mm -hmm. and who your director is and who your supervisor is and all of those things. But um, it was really hard. I remember taking an interview with an electronic medical records company the second semester I taught because it was just so hard. I was between two teachers outside and I really couldn't get anyone to visit my classroom at the school because there were no fights in my classroom and there weren't really any complaints about my classroom. And so they were just said, you're fine. Uh -huh. Wow. Very good teacher at my first year. I feel very bad for those students, <laughs> but I was, I was okay by the end of it. Mm -hmm. Let me step back to your childhood for a moment. Um, who in your in growing up uh, helped you? Who were the the helpers in your neighborhood? Um, who do you you credit your success to? Definitely my parents. Mm -hmm. They very much came from a generation of you work and you work and you work until you sleep, and then you get up and you work <laughs> and you work until you sleep again. It was very much a, you join the sport, you're going to every practice. My mom did every school project with me. I remember making a, a diorama. Of, it was supposed to be a Native American tribe diorama. And we were cutting up a suede t-shirt to make like bucks, tiny buckskin blankets to like drape over this, these sticks. I don't know what we had made. And she, I remember her saying like, you have to have the best one. There's no point in doing it if it's not the best one. <laughs> because it was 1 a.m. in the morning and I was 11. So um, definitely my parents 
credited for my success and also my neuroses. I think fair. (laughs) (laughs) So you were a senior, you're studying biomedical engineering. You're not really excited about the prospects. You do teach for America. You teach two more years. Then you end up back at Texas with Yuri Treisman. Okay, so what's happening during that time that you're at Texas now when you're back there with Yuri Treisman? What what kinds of classes are you taking? What are you learning from him? Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. My PhD is in STEM education with a focus in math and engineering. And the courses that I took as part of that program were everything from some curriculum history to how to lead teachers in professional development to equity in STEM education, which I think should not be a separate class. I think it should just be built into every class, but neither here nor there. URI is separate from the actual STEM ed department. And I don't do a lot of work in that department anymore. Most of my work is in the department of mathematics. And so how our relationship started was I TA'd for him my first year, even though I was on a fellowship. My husband decided he's a physical therapist to do a fellowship, so I needed some extra money. So I TA'd for him, and then he asked me to be his student. So I was working with another advisor. Before I had met him, I TA'd for him another year, and then I got an NSF fellowship. And so I basically worked on course design with him after that. And I managed all the TAs and all the undergraduate TAs and really worked on the structures and routines of the class and the content with him. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Basically, that's still kind of what we do. We really focus on creating and designing course environments for freshmen that promote positive learning mindsets. So growth mindset, belonging and purpose. And we work closely with the College of Engineering. Mm -hmm because they funnel a lot of their students who are enrolled in their success program into our course. So our course serves a lot of students who are first-generation college students, who are underrepresented minority students, and those are the students that I like prefer to work with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, well, tell, us, tell us about those experiences. Uh, what, what do you do to help establish growth mindset and uh, feeling of belonging in those classes? So we do a lot of things. I think I spent the first two years of working with him just cataloging all of the different things that go on in the course because there are a lot of moving pieces and then working to refine those over the years. But for example, on the first day, we really focus on making students feel welcome in the course. And so Uri and I work very hard to learn everybody's name before the first day. So we will study and quiz each other and study their pictures some more. And then there's always a girl who comes and I'm like, you used to have blue hair and now you have pink hair. (laughs) (laughs) And he will do things like on the first day, he will show them their math genealogy and show them where they are in terms of their placement in that genealogy and that they're always our students from here on out and that this content and this knowledge is really their inheritance and it's something that they're entitled to. It's Mm -hmm. not something that they have to prove that they're worthy of. Mm -hmm. They just deserve it because they are in the course and they are part of our academic 
family. Mm -hmm. And so those are two very simple examples that we do on the first day. Mm -hmm. So by the math genealogy, you mean uh, who taught Uri mathematics? And, And so he owes his education to these people. And now he is teaching his students mathematics or your students mathematics. And so they uh, have that right to that same education that he received in mathematics. Now that's very nice. Very nice. His advisor was Leon Hankin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it goes all the way back and there, I think Leibniz ends up being in the genealogy, which is really exciting for students. Once we tell them who that is, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we'll remind them over the course of the semester. This mm-hmm. formula or theorem is attributed to this person and they are your ancestor, remember? Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw it, I was honestly thought it was very cheesy and I didn't think that I would be able to pull it off on my own because Uri does have a certain amount of theatrical mm-hmm. flair, which mm-hmm. is very impressive, but students love it and they get really into it. And it, I think the fact that I thought it wouldn't work was more my anxiety of showing it to them than it was about them receiving it. Mm-hmm. And so I really love it now. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if you could talk about, you have this rich training um, classes in curriculum history, how to lead teachers in professional development, equity in the STEM classroom. So you have a sort of a, the- let's call that a theoretical or classroom-based instruction, and then you're actually in the classroom practical side. So how do you, how do those intersect for you? I think it never translates perfectly, number one. Mm -hmm. So it's more about having a knowledge foundation to then have a filter to run experiences through. Mm -hmm. Um, And so A lot of the work that Uri and I do is not actually covered in the curriculum from the STEM education program, but a lot of it is covered through educational psychology. So we read a lot of work by people like David Yeager and Carol Dweck about growth mindset and belonging and interventions that work in the classroom. And then we think about, this is how they did it at an orientation. These are the underlying principles of this intervention. What could we do in our classroom that would retain these principles, but work on a daily basis or work as a routine, a weekly routine. So it's a lot of just teamwork and brainstorming and trying things and then them not working and then trying them again and getting a little bit better every year. So what happens when you try and it doesn't quote unquote work? What does that look like? Are you down and out or do you guys give yourself Do you all operate in a growth mindset where you're like, well, that didn't work. Okay, we're going to try something else. We very rarely throw things out the window. So it's it's mostly if something doesn't work, we think about, well, why didn't it work? Do, Do we need to place it somewhere else in the semester? Do we need to change the way we're delivering this structure or routine? We talk to students a lot in our class and get feedback often. So there's a routine that we use that he's developed over the years called classroom representatives. And so there's four discussion sections. Well, there's two discussions that meet four times a week attached to the course. And so of those two discussion sections, they each elect two class representatives. And part of their work is to survey their classmates, bring to us two or three things they want to change or work on. 
and we will tell them we are going to do these one or two things. And if we can't do something, we always tell them why we can't do that thing. Um, and then they make a presentation to the class. So, or I also, um, we use undergraduate teaching assistants who I run. And so we usually have eight or nine of them who are running homework sessions and I meet with them weekly. And so I always ask them, what are students saying? Mm-hmm. What, how do you think they're feeling? Mm-hmm. What's the pulse of the class? Because they're much more vulnerable with those TAs than they are with me or Uri. And so sometimes they'll come back and they'll tell me, students are feeling very down. They are frustrated. They are not getting it very well. And then I'll do something like throw them a softball quiz on a Tuesday where everybody gets a good grade on it just to kind of lift morale. So things like that, I think, help in terms of tweaking routines and also just making sure students are feeling motivated throughout the semester. Mm -hmm. What do you do? When you get good ideas, when you find things that work, how do you and Uri get this information out to other people? Um, you know, it's great that you're doing this research and um, figuring out things that help students succeed in the classroom, but you want to you want to tell everyone, I assume. <laughs> I think that's the part that we're struggling with now is how to scale it up mm-hmm. or how to package it or frame it in a way that other people could use some of these ideas or structures, routines, and rituals. I think the hard part is the delivery of these things very much matters. And so trying to, and it's honestly, even if someone's teaching calculus and even if someone is comfortable doing a lot of these things, I think it's going to be different for everybody because everybody teaches in a different way or has a different personality. And if they're not delivered in an authentic way, then I think they'll fall flat. There's a lot of growth mindset research, for example, that talks about using effort praise. And if it's used in certain ways, or if it's used in inauthentic ways, or you're only delivering effort praise to the students who are doing poorly, and then you're delivering performance-based praise to the other students, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. So figuring out how we could package these things that we do in a way that limits the amount of risk involved in scaling it up. My worst nightmare is packaging some of these things and then people very well-intentioned putting them in their classrooms and then they hurt students or damage the motivation of students who are the most vulnerable. So I think that's what's hardest for me right now to work through. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned delivery and and delivery matters. Um, Do... um, can anyone be a professor? Can anyone be a good professor? That is, or does it matter uh, the way that they, if they're a performance person, more like Uri or a, a Shire professor? I think that's a really great question. And I think the answer is yes, everyone can be a great teacher or just a better teacher. I think thinking about it incrementally is, is much more productive. Everyone could get a little bit better every year. I don't know if everyone can, everyone can't be Uri. I can't be Uri. I've been working with him for six years because he does things like knows the etymology of students' names and will tell them in Aramaic where their name comes from. (laughs) I cannot do that. But I, I do think that when I say delivery matters, I just mean it has to be authentic to the person teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh 
So if you're forcing people to do things they don't believe in, or you're asking a person to do something that they're uncomfortable doing, it definitely isn't going to ring true with students. I think 18 year olds are the best hypocrisy detectors, right? Or they're very good at just seeing through people. And so I think that's what I mean when delivery matters. And I think honestly, doing these things in your classroom would be really hard if you didn't have somebody to talk through them with. So I'm trying to think of ways to scale this up in a way Mm -hmm. where it's more like what Uri and I do, because we meet and talk about these things every week together, Mm -hmm. what's working, what's not working, what we need to change. And I think it definitely needs to be more of a collaborative coaching model. And, but coaching doesn't even imply the power dynamic. I think it needs to be more equal, right? It really needs to be a collaborative process and people need to be able to feel free to do, distill the routines that we have down into the components that are necessary while changing the things they need to change to make it feel authentic to their teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's come back to where we started. You were talking about your dissertation. So how is this? Tell us about your dissertation. Presumably this is, I'm just guessing this is part of it. It is part of it. It's a small part of it. So my dissertation is a longitudinal qualitative study of students that we have taught in the past. So students that we taught in 2017, I interviewed them a year and a half later. And just to try to make sure or see if the messages we were trying to deliver to students were heard in a way that was what we were trying to deliver. Mm -hmm. And then what did they remember? What did they retain? What stuck out the most to them? And then how are they thinking about university and their professional lives now, a year and a half later? So what did the class mean to them? What routine structures and rituals were the most impactful for them? And did we do anything that hurt them? Did we do anything that wasn't great? Did we do anything that made them doubt themselves? And then they've all graduated. And so the second round of interviews is happening soon. And so I'm going to follow up with them after they've graduated and just see where are they now? And how did taking this class their freshman year help them develop a positive narrative or any narrative about themselves? And so that's the gist of it. And the idea is that there's not a lot of longitudinal studies that try to capture the impact of freshman year classes. Mm -hmm. And it's very ironic that I have all this training in quantitative science and my dissertation is purely qualitative. (laughs) But the more that I do this work, the more I realize the impact of stories on people to change their minds and to help them realize the potential that their class has on students' trajectories. I think professors really underestimate the impact they can have on students' lives, especially in their freshman year. Mm -hmm. Say more, what do you mean by stories? What do you mean by the impact of stories on students? So I think now there's a lot of data coming out that says quantitative, and I don't know how true this is for mathematicians specifically, because I don't know if they've ever done studies like this on a subset of mathematicians, but most of the research says that stories are more powerful than showing people data. Stories are more powerful to change people's minds, 
stories are sticky. That's what people remember. And I really think understanding students' experiences is powerful. And so I'm really hoping to capture some of that in my dissertation. And I think I will. There's one interview that I did with a student who was an aerospace engineer. And so Uri and I well, really me because I come from this background of charter schools where you track everything and measure everything and data is very important. And so I came on to Uri's class and I decided I was going to track everyone, like every student. So I have all these spreadsheets with their grades and when they came to office hours, what they said and what they said in their student survey and what my UGTAs are saying about them. And there was a student who wasn't showing up to anything. She wasn't turning in homework. And so I emailed her probably seven times and she didn't reply, but she, she showed up to a discussion and I followed her out of the discussion, just asking to talk to her, just to check on her. And she was in a position where she was an emancipated minor and her dad had claimed her on his taxes when he shouldn't have. It messed up her entire financial aid and she needed $12,000 in three days or she was going to have to drop out. Mm. And so I connected her with Uri and he solved the problem for her. But the reason that she wasn't answering any of my emails was because she was a very driven student and did not want to burden anybody else with her problem. Mm -hmm. She very much felt like this was a problem she needed to solve on her own. It was her problem. She should mm -hmm. not require help. And professors especially should not be burdened. They're very important people or they're very busy people and they don't need this extra problem on their plate. Mm -hmm. And I did an interview with her. She's part of the group that I interviewed. And so I think it's just a really good example of a situation where you're not going to get a lot of students like that. So you're not going to find a ton of students in crisis. And I think a lot of times when we think about student interventions or things we're doing in our classroom or we're looking at data, People focus on how can we move the most students or how can we impact the bubble students or how we only have this much time, what should we do? And I think that's great, but I think we lose sight of if you can help one or two students with these crazy things and change their lives, that's also really powerful. It's not something mm -hmm. that we should ignore. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. I mean, there are most classes that we have, there's probably a student or two in crisis that we just don't know about. And if we can help them in some way, yeah, that, that can really affect their lives. Good point. Um, I know that you're, well, you must be thinking about what actually the answers are for your thesis right now, your dissertation. So what do you hope that you're going to be finding from interviewing the students again? What do you hope that they're uh, taking out of their first year class, uh, what do you hope sticks with them? And then, and then we'll ask you in a few months what you found. <laughs> I hope that they realize their self-worth is not determined by a grade. And I hope that they realize that university is a time for them to explore and figure out what's important to them and that they don't have to sacrifice personal values in pursuit of ambition or a profession. And I hope if giving back to their community or giving back to another community is important to them, I hope they know that they can do both. Mm -hmm. They can 
exist in a profession that's not necessarily obviously aligned to those goals and figure out a way to make both of them happen. Mm -hmm. And I hope that they feel like they belong at university Mm -hmm. and they don't doubt their intelligence. And I hope they're inoculated against some of the experiences I know they'll have that will be difficult for Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, are there any mathematical aspects that you hope stick with them? Anything about mathematics or about calculus that you hope to see that they uh, have several years later? I hope that they realize they have the right to be creative with mathematics and that they don't just need to take and absorb information that's being given to them. I think a lot of times our students feel like they're capable of learning mathematics, but they're not the ones who get to own it. They're not the ones who get to change it. Mm-hmm. And I hope they feel like they can. Mm-hmm. So when you finish your dissertation, this is basically going to be take two of, um, I think 10, if I've done the math right, 10 years ago, when you graduated, you're looking at your biomedical engineering, not happy with that. So you, what's on your horizon? What are you hoping for when this is done next May? For Erica, I hope that I get to teach. I love teaching. So I would love to be an instructional faculty member who works on problems of teaching. An instructional faculty member who gets to teach and also works with other instructional faculty members to make their classrooms more inviting and welcoming and promote these learning mindsets that I've spent a really long time (laughs) trying to understand. And if I couldn't teach, I'd be very sad. I love working with students. They're amazing. Well, based on how you do your research and the one thing I've learned from you, the critical importance of your audience, i.e. your students, it sounds like it would be really difficult for you to continue your work without keeping your audience in front of you. You place such a strong value on your students and you give them power I wanted to ask another question about you. Um, Okay, so you're working on your dissertation, you're working with students, you're managing the undergraduate TAs, you have other TAs, you're meeting with Uri. We only have so much time in the day. So how do you prioritize, how do you get things done and take care of Erica along the way? I think especially with managing so many people, If it can be done in an email, I don't think we need a meeting. That's one thing that I feel very strongly about, especially working as a high school teacher. It can be in an email, you don't need to meet. But I do think there's a lot of value in meeting and in talking regularly. So really reserving that time that we meet together for specific things. So if it's logistics and it can be done in an email, making sure that's done before the meeting. And I think working with Uri, the reason we work so well together is I am very organized and efficient. And he like brings up a lot of ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of before. And then we can banter those back and forth. And so I really thank my 
neuroses from high school is serving me well <laughs> in my graduate work. And I think in terms of taking care of myself, I did a lot of things my first year of graduate school that I don't do now. So I don't make myself available through email 24 seven. Mm-hmm. I will um, not meet on Sundays <laughs> or say like, no, I'm busy this day. Whereas before I would make myself available for everything. And I don't necessarily know if that was a mistake my first or second year of graduate school because graduate school is a cutthroat place. And to get where you want to be with the people that you want to work with, I don't necessarily know if not making yourself available was an option for me. So I want to be really careful if there's a graduate student listening to this <laughs> and then their first year and they're like, I'm not going to do any of these things. I don't know if that would have worked my first or second year. So definitely drawing some personal boundaries around time was important. We, uh, I, we adopted a little girl mm. in May. And oh, so parenting, thank you. Parenting at she's seven. And so Parenting and working has been really hard for me because instead of feeling like I'm really good at one thing, I feel like I'm okay at two things. <laughs> so not quite sure if all those people who told women they could have it all when I was in high school are, <laughs> are as accurate because you can't be perfect at everything. Time is a limited resource. And so I have been taking a lot of meetings in my car this summer. So that has been interesting. Whereas before I would be so horrified if I was not like perfectly dressed, even on a Zoom call, like I want everyone to make sure they know I have my stuff together. And I'm, I mean, I took meetings in my car in a swimsuit cover up this summer. Welcome to parenthood. <laughs> I know. It's just been <laughs> crazy. So yeah, I don't know. It's been interesting, but it's been great. And so Trying to figure out how to make it all work has been different, I think. Let me um, turn to tips you might have for others. I'm going to ask you if you have just, we have um, teachers and students listening to our podcast. So we wondered if you could tell us a a tip you might, just one tip you might have for teachers um, in their classrooms and one tip you might have for students in their classrooms. I think my tip for teachers would be to whatever amount of control you have now in your classroom, give up 10% of it and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter how you give it up. I would say um, the teachers I meet are always hesitant to have their classroom be a little bit messier. And I think anytime you can give up control to students, it's a good thing. And then as soon as you start doing it, you'll realize, well, I could do give up a little bit more and I could give up a little bit more. And then it becomes this classroom where the responsibility for learning and progress and success is really shared equally mm-hmm. between teachers and students. And I think that's a space I'm always trying to work towards, which is never perfect. Mm-hmm. And then if you're bad at something, just try it again, do it a different way. You will use, I've made so many mistakes teaching. I don't like to think about them, but. 
And for students, I would say always ask for help as soon as you need it. Mm-hmm. because you will inevitably struggle with something. I don't care how great you are, how well-prepared you are, which high school you went to, everyone will struggle with something at some point. And the longer you keep that to yourself and think this is my problem and I'm the only one who needs to fix it, the harder it will be to actually fix it. And it doesn't really matter who you ask for help. They, If it, they can't help you, they'll point you in a different direction, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. So I want to go back to a personal question about Erica, especially in light of the fact that you uh, just adopted a little girl just a few months ago. What are you doing to take care of yourself? And how do you do that? I think most people, when I think of this question, I always think of people saying like, I exercise regularly or I drink a lot of water. And those are things that I definitely aspire to, but I'm not very good at. And so when I'm feeling overwhelmed and anxious, really the only thing that makes me feel better is making progress on the thing that is driving me insane. So uh, Sunday, my husband took our daughter out paddleboarding and they went grocery shopping and all these things. And I could just sit and do work. Mm -hmm. And that actually really helped. So I don't think it's a really great answer to say like, (laughs) make myself feel better. I just do more work. But I do think that attacking the thing that's giving me anxiety makes me feel better because if I take breaks, then I just come back from the break and I still have all of these things to do. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel more anxious because now I still have all of these things to do and I've lost more time. And then I'm, it's really a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And so another thing that I did to address this problem of time, because it's not limited to work. If my house is dirty, I get very anxious about that. Mm -hmm. And so I hired a cleaning service to come clean my house. (laughs) And that was really hard for me. It was really hard to pay someone to clean my house and I could do it myself. Because like I said, my parents were very much work, work, work until you sleep. I'm like, work, work, work some more. Mm -hmm. But I think I've convinced myself that I'm not really paying for my clean house. I'm really paying for the time Mm -hmm. that I get to spend with my family. And I'm really paying for the relief of all the stress that I have from dust accumulating on every, why does dust accumulate so quickly? I don't, you don't even open the door that often. <laughs> it's the worst. And um, it's been really great. I don't know if I can ever go back. <laughs> Unfortunately. If you, if you combine those two though, it strikes me. Um, if you're feeling overwhelmed about your t- to-do list. You want to make progress. And then you have, so think about that. That's sort of like freeing mental space. And then the cleaning service is actually creating the kind of physical space that puts you in the best frame of mind. So both of those are really about creating better spaces, one in your mind and one physically. And there's lots of research that supports both of those. Mm -hmm. So in addition to exercising and drinking water, of course, but I do those things just not as often. Yeah. <laughs> I really like sleep too. I thought it would get easier as an adult, but I still like it. One of my favorite things about parenting, uh, a small, a seven-year-old, a small child is that um, you are forced to uh, break up your day 
And you, you just have to stop and have dinner with your family or read a book or take a walk or go paddleboarding. And I think it brings a fresh perspective to research. Whereas when the children get older, you can literally, uh, Deanna and I talk about this, we can start working early in the morning and keep working all day. And then you realize, you know, you never really pause to get that refreshing break. So Mm -hmm. it's one, your point about time is well taken, but it's one part of parenting that I think is really refreshing. Mm -hmm. I love that you made that point. Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about that a lot in her biographies and her books. So when she had her kid and she was just like forced to play with her after Um, university or after law school and then she was forced to make time for her and then I mean she worked through the night which I would not do but she said the same thing which really resonates with me I love reading biographies and books from other women who are juggling ambitious careers with parenting Mm -hmm. the whole genre really Mm -hmm. uh let me take a little turn and and ask you about um you talked about in your classrooms the importance of belonging and making community. And so I'd like to ask you for a time in your life when you felt like you really belonged somewhere, you felt like you were part of a community, or on the flip side, you a time when um, you didn't feel very comfortable and you didn't feel like you belonged somewhere. I thought about both of these questions in true Erica neurotic fashion <laughs> because I think like journaled about all of them before the podcast. But I think a time where I think one, this question is difficult because on some level, I'm always trying to prove I belong in the space, even if I feel like I belong there incrementally. Um, But I think the closest I've ever come to freeing myself from that feeling of proving myself was my last year of teaching in high schools in New Orleans, because I had been teaching long enough that I felt like I knew what I was doing, finally. And then also, I had been at the school for long enough that students knew me and my reputation. And so there was a certain level of trust given to me freely that I didn't have to work as hard for. Mm-hmm. And then I had been in New Orleans for almost 10 years at that point. And so I really felt like I was part of the community and I was working in that community, mm-hmm. which is a different feeling than just going to university there because you don't really feel like you're involved in the community. It's more of a subset of the community that's very privileged. And so I had places to go to watch the Endymion Mardi Gras parade, or I had crawfish boils on Saturday that I was invited to. I had places, I had houses to go to during Mardi Gras to use the bathroom. I just <laughs> knew people in the city. And so I don't really have that in Austin. I don't have people. I think the older I get, the harder it is to make lasting personal relationships with people outside your family. Mm-hmm. And the, the relationships that I do have are very spread out geographically. And so it's a lot of FaceTiming with friends instead of crawfish boils on the weekend. It's another thing that you'll find that kids are good for is they'll introduce you into a whole new group of friends. I hope so. She is really funny. And so... And she's in this very progressive hippie charter school now in Austin that we're excited to start. They have like 
hiking trails attached to it. And there's an eco wellness elective. <laughs> Can I tell you about a time where I don't feel like I belong? Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe you guys could impart some wisdom or advice to me. So still, when I go to academic conferences, I'm fine presenting and answering questions about my personal work, and I'm fine attending talks and asking questions. Anytime there is any sort of mixer event or an open event where I have to circulate and mingle, I do not feel like I belong there. It is very intimidating, that space. I feel like there's pockets. Every time I walk into a room, I feel like I'm the only singular person. And everywhere else, there are pockets of people who know each other. Mm-hmm. And I think because I don't have a research group and it's just me and Uri going to these conferences together, um, it's very isolating. And I, I'm not quite sure how to insert myself into those different pockets. And so you have an amazing uh, collection of information and knowledge and tips that I think any faculty member would love to just sit and talk with you for a long time to pick your brain about what you know and what you've studied and what you've learned and um, the reactions that students have had to your research. I think uh, you more than most people have a really interesting dissertation that you can really talk to anyone about. Uh, And I think you know, I, I encourage you to use that information and, you know, gently insert little um, topics of conversation in these in these other pods. And uh, I think people will love seeking you out and talking to you about your work. Well, so I'll just say I share your discomfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm in those situations, if I can, I try to go with somebody. Of course, that's the best. But if not, you're a natural. All those things you're doing with your students, you can do with those faculty in that room too, where you can just say, tell me about what you're doing in your classroom. The one shared experience everybody at these conferences has is teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there are probably a very small number of research faculty in America. It's such a small number though. Almost every, almost everybody in, at these conferences is going to have some experience teaching at some point. And that's your bailiwick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you really do have that advantage. But I want to just really say that I share your discomfort. Yeah. yeah, I do too. I would say, you know, just find one other person. It only takes one other person in the group to start a conversation with that really helps you feel like um, you belong. One thing we learned from this community volume is how many people feel like that mm-hmm. and how they worked to overcome it. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is reflective of lots of other people who may or may not be willing to say it out loud. Indeed. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. Okay, so we have five uh, lightning round questions and the first one is fill in the blank and all the rest are questions. I think it's to prepare for these. A little bit nervous. (laughs) (laughs) The first, this is just like teaching though. Come on, you're in the classroom, things happen. Okay, so the first one, mathematics is? I think it's so many things, it's hard. I think the first thing that came to mind is difficult and it's not necessarily difficult because of the content, but it's difficult because of all the social pressures that are attached to it. 
Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that I talk to who aren't mathematicians have some sort of traumatic math experience in their past. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's difficult for a lot of different reasons, not necessarily related to the content. I think there's a lot of social pressure attached to it. I think women who are good at mathematics often get funneled into it, even if they don't necessarily want to be doing it. I think so. There's a lot to be said about it and it's complicated. Maybe it's complicated is a better word. (laughs) (laughs) It's a relationship status with mathematics. It's complicated. (laughs) I think that's the most accurate way for me to describe it. What's the last book you read that you could not put down? Um, Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. Mm. He also recently wrote a book called Razorblade Tears that I just ordered, came out in July. It's very much like the Southern thriller novel. Nice. Where's a place that you really enjoy? My couch. <laughs> I like it. Like it there. Speaking <laughs> of honesty. <laughs> Okay, what's on your desk that would surprise us? I don't have a desk. <laughs> Is that surprising? I don't have one. Um, I don't have an office because I was on a fellowship for so long. So I share Uri's office. I haven't been there. So there's a dead plant on it for sure. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been there since the pandemic started. Um, and then the only desk I use in my house, there's a lot of Legos on it because it's in the playroom. Um. <laughs> Great. So, what sound reminds you of home? So, dishes being done in the because my dad will always leave the mess in the kitchen and then wake up really, really early and do it. I don't know why because we all complain about it, but he will just do it. He and he is an airplane mechanic, so he's used to waking up at. 30 in the morning so on the weekends he'll wake up at six and it's sleeping in and he'll just start banging the dishes and I don't know how someone could be so loud with dishes <laughs> but that sound reminds me of home or my dad talking to himself as he does all of the household chores also reminds me of home <laughs> drives my mom crazy very nice now you get to set those routines to drive your kid crazy <laughs> Wonderful. What was it you said about successes and neuroses? You're tracking all the way back to your parents. <laughs> I for sure talk to myself all the time. So in undergrad, even I would be like in the bathroom. My roommates would be like, "Is there somebody in there with like who's in the bathroom with you?" I'm like nobody. I'm just talking through things. Or if I'm in the shower, I'll like replay a conversation or I'll like act out a conversation I think I'm going to have that day. Not. This is why being, this is the level of preparedness that is my neuroses. And like, maybe I'll see this person and we should have this conversation and I should think through it right now. I do that too, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) Your best audience. I once read that about talking to yourself. You have your best audience. My dad always says, as long as he's not talking back to himself, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's all not that well. 
Well, Erica, thank you so much for the time you spent with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. And best of luck finishing in May in your new horizon. Yeah. Thank you so much. I hope that we get to stay in touch and I can hear more about your work and belonging in mathematics and maybe I'll see you at a conference. Absolutely. Come up to us, please. (laughs) Well, that was really fun talking with Erica. She's got so much energy and, and she's going places. I can tell. What did you pick up from the conversation, Della? So I really loved and probably needed to hear, um, she is so flexible. She talked about how uh, she and Uri uh, reevaluate, they take new ideas, they try new things, they're flexible. And I felt like this was also underscored when we asked her about the surprising item on her desk. And she said, I don't have a desk. Mm-hmm. So she is comfortable being in a lot of places, working in a lot of spaces, rethinking ideas. So I love her flexibility. And on the flip side of that, uh, she talked about how many times she takes pauses. Like at the end of her college career, she realized she was on a trajectory. She just had to stop and think, is this the trajectory I want to be on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she and Uri again, they're reflecting. So I really appreciated her emphasis on pausing And then I love the way they focus on the students and they're asking for feedback from students. This is an experience, their classroom is an experience where the students have so much power, so much uh, insight. So then when you ask her a tip for teachers, Mm -hmm. I have never heard that tip. Mm -hmm. Give up Mm -hmm. 10% of control. Yeah, what would that mean? That would be interesting. Mm -hmm. I'll have to try Three main takeaways. I want to be more flexible. I want to make time for a reflective pause. And I want to really think about my audience of students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had a lot of great ideas and things that are working. I can't wait, wait to read her dissertation. That, that's one that I'd actually enjoy reading. <laughs> well, that was fun. So thanks for joining us. We're counting you in. Until next time, this is Della Indiana. Count Me In with Dell Indiana is produced by the talented Sam Dunnewald. Music is by Casey Fenster and the podcast image is by Victoria Robinson.